Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. This week we find out who can make a C without seeing. It is episode 383 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham and I was so excited when C returned on Apple TV Plus last week, episode two, actually airing right now on Apple TV Plus. And I got a chance to talk to co-producer and blindness consultant for the series, Joe Strecce. And man, does he have some interesting things to say about how the series is put together and how he worked with the actors, cited or not cited, about what they had to do to make the series as authentic as possible. I got to tell you, Joe has some very interesting insights into the second season of C that you're definitely going to want to hear. I also got a chance to talk to the director of Yakuza Princess, which you can see everywhere right now from Magnolia Pictures, Vincente Amorim joins me this week to talk about that very, very interesting story. And if you didn't know about the Yakuza in Sao Paulo, you're going to learn a lot about that here coming up. In just a little bit. Also going to be reviewing Mortal Kombat Battle of the Realms. The new animated film from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. Some great nerd news to discuss this week. Some comics as well. But yeah, I can't wait any longer. I really really want you to be able to hear what Joe Strecce had to say. The blindness co-consultant and co-producer of C joins me next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Clarissa Tebow from Marvel's Runaways. And you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. The war has barely just begun. Season 2 of Apple TV's C is now streaming on Apple TV+. And Episode 2 actually dropped today. I got a chance to talk to co-producer and blindness consultant for the series, Joe Strecce, about a whole bunch of things coming up in this upcoming season. So here's my conversation with Joe Strecce from Apple TV's C. Joe, how you doing? Doing great, brother. Great to connect with you. So I'm sure you did a lot of work educating many of these actors during the first season of C, especially early on. Now the series is entering its second season. Are you still expanding on that knowledge and bringing new things that we might not have seen or that you've seen these actors do in season one? Definitely. Uh, we we took what we were doing in season one and expanded on it like fivefolds for season two. You know, working with our actors working with uh, new characters, whether they're blind or low vision, or whether, I mean, whether the characters are blind or whether their characters are sighted. And I reached out to a lot of friends and thought creatively around the world of blindness. And and, and Jonathan Tropper, our new showrunner, uh, and and getting to work with the writer's room as they developed out the scripts and, and building in these themes. I keep running lists of things around blindness that we could use in our show. And They embraced some of those and built some of those into our show. And we did some of that in season one and we did even more in season two. And it's exciting to get to bring that to the screen. I actually want to talk about those sighted characters for a second because people might not understand you. I'm sure you work with them a lot as well, as you said. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most important things that you work on them with and how much do you feel like that adds to the authenticity of the series as a whole? Yeah, I've been very lucky to work on this show for the last three years. I guess over three years now. And so I know the world of C so well. And, and these characters, even with sight, are grown up in a world of people who are blind. So knowing all those aspects. And, and I, I'm lucky that our, I work with our director every day to block every scene. And whether it's characters who are blind in the scene or whether it's just characters with sight. And there, I see things in a different way. So I give notes to our our actors and, and whether they're portraying blindness or not, whether how they interact with the other people, the other characters who are blind, or whether it's just how they're interacting in this, this world we've created. It's a blessing. Nesta Cooper, Archie Medeque, Eden Epstein, and so many other actors, Alfre Woodard, uh, Dave Batista, Jason Momoa, all of them are so considerate about bringing that world to life. 
actually want to talk about that world a little bit because you guys are really expanding on the setting and the world of this series this season. How much will that add to the story come up in season two? In season two, we're, we're showing you more than the small world that we were showing. You're going to find out more about Trevantes. You're going to find out about these different civilizations and groups, and you're going to see how those civilizations work and how they differ from what you've seen in season one. So it, it's just going to be exciting to see those differences and what the resources were, what how the political climate was in that environment, who the leadership who was driving that, basically driving the ship, you know, who, who was running that show and how that world developed out. Because these, these worlds are in a certain distance, but they're, they don't interact in, in, in many ways, and, but they develop out and then we get to see them merge in, in certain aspects. Absolutely. I think the weather might actually play a factor in this as well, because it's getting a lot colder here in season two. Does that affect... <laughs> At all, because I've always wondered, this, does that affect maybe the echolocation uh, of of people with with blindness, and and does, is that maybe going to factor in as well? Because you know, I, I I've always wondered that. Great question. So moving into winter, you know, you have less leaves on the trees, so your echolocation might go further in in certain aspects. You might have less grass that is uh, absorbing some of that sound. The harder surfaces, it might be bouncing off, whether it's snow or ice. It definitely changes the sound and, and how echolocation travels, but it, it, it can be beneficial. You can hear people walking in a, in a further distance, walking through snow or ice. There are all kinds of aspects and you use your staff in a different way when you're traveling through, through snow and ice versus uh, walking on grass. Yeah, we played with all of those things in our scenes, in our show, and you'll see more and more as you go into season two and uh, more and more echolocation as well. Interesting, interesting. We're talking to Joe, Joe Strecce, who's the co-producer and blindness consultant for Apple TV's C. Now, Joe, family, obviously a big part of, of this season. Let's talk about Baba and Ido Voss for a second. How much can you tell us about how deep that sibling rivalry runs and how and, and could fans maybe be torn as to who's on the right side here? Just like any other show, uh, characters are complex, and I, I think you'll see that with Ido Voss and, and Baba Voss. I, I think these characters and Baba Voss, you know, their family and, and members being drawn in different directions. And I, you're going to see these characters develop out more. You'll see the history between Ido and Baba and, and that explored and family members coming into their own. I think there's a, so much happening in season two and there's so many storylines that uh, fans will be drawn into. And I'm curious how how they'll react to, that's a great question you're asking. So I'm curious what fans will think. Things haven't exactly been easy for Queen Kane, especially we saw that at the end of season one. Seems like she's still holding her kind of high standing though, heading into season two. After all that's happened, how careful does the queen need to be heading into this season? Oh, Queen Kane is definitely walking a line. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a new world and uh, we're going to we're gonna see what, what the queen brings to it. She is a unique character. Sylvia Hooks uh, brings so much to that character and, and her interactions with, with Magra and, uh, and, and the, the world of sea. And we'll see what, what happens in Paya and what comes of it. I, I think there's so many possibilities. I'm waiting. I'm really excited for what you'll you'll all think of it. Joe, before I let you go, I mean, you add Dave Batista this season and I, and immediately, I don't, I don't, I don't care if you've watched the show before or not. You see Jason Momoa on one side and Dave Batista on the other side. I mean, that's must see as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> talk about what was the vibe like during those scenes between the two of them? Because I mean, you could probably cut the tension with a knife during those scenes, right? How cool was that? It was pretty amazing to be in a space with Dave Batista and Jason Momoa and, you know, as they're figuring out things and working on things, whether uh, in, a, in fight scenes or whether it's just dramatic and they bring so much to their characters. Yeah, it, they, they both have different processes and how they, as actors and, and as people, and uh, you, it'll be intense when you see it on screen. And you guys can see it right now, as a matter of fact, because season two of C has begun on Apple TV Plus. You can get caught up on season one pretty quickly as well if you haven't watched it yet. And man, just watch it. Binge it from the beginning. It's Joe Strecce. Thank you so much, man, for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you, brother. And boy, has season two already delivered. We found another, a little bit of a spoiler here for episode one, found another sighted character on the show. Won't tell you who it is or what side that they're on, but that adds to a little bit of intrigue. 
You get to see maybe some what some of the tension is between Baba and Ido, and even Baba's kids as well, maybe getting involved in this whole family history too. Just there's so many things to love, not just about the action, but of the drama and the unknown of Apple TV C, which you can watch every Friday on Apple TV Plus season two, just going right now. Once again, thanks to Joe Stretch here for joining me this week to talk about C. Up next, we'll talk about Yakuza Princess with director Vincente Amorim up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Patrick Fischler from Happy on Sci-Fi, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is not exactly the family tree that you expect to find when you trace back your ancestry, but Yakuza Princess gives some big surprises for its main character and so much more. It's such a unique take on the Yakuza and a very, very different setting. I'm so glad I got a chance to sit down with director Vincente Amorim to talk about this movie, which you can see everywhere right now. And it's September 30th here. That's when it came out. So that's when you're going to be able to see it. And now you can find out why you should see it from the director himself. Here's my conversation with Vincente. So the film's actually based on the graphic novel Shiro by Daniello Bayruth. So, or Bayruth. So what was the, what was it about that story that intrigued you so much? When the producer, when Tubaldini Schelling invited me to direct this, the graphic novel didn't even exist yet. It was a work in progress. He had produced uh, another movie called Motorad, which I directed, which is a slasher whose characters were created by Danilo Beirut. When he said, I've got a new project and it's by Danilo, would you like to do it? I said, yeah, sure. Send me, send me the graphic novel. I said, no, 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 wait, wait. It's not, it doesn't exist yet. What do you mean? So uh, they, uh, they had me over for lunch. They basically pitched me what the graphic novel would be. And they asked me if I'd like to be involved in the adaptation of the graphic novel when it was ready. And I said, yeah, sure. But why in that case, why don't we do it sort of in parallel? So we got kind of the best of both worlds, which was to, at the same time, adapt the graphic novel and the movie one was sort of influencing the other on on the go. Of course, the graphic novel was ready much before we even actually had a, a proper first draft of the script. And from there on, we based our work on what the graphic novel became. But it was great to be able to give input to the graphic novel itself. To sort of there was a back and forth there, which is very unusual. So it was almost like you were working in parallel. So it actually probably ended up for both of the stories ended up making a more a better adaptation than you would have maybe normally had. Ab- absolutely, absolutely, and and actually there are differences uh, between the graphic novel and and the film and the the script of the film, which we decided way before the graphic novel was ever ready. We said, okay, here where this character does this or goes this way, we're going another way. Well, I mean. There, I guess the most obvious difference is that is that the graphic novel is called Shiro and uh, the movie is called Yakuza Princess. And that's kind of where the weight of each character took a different course. But it is it is truly an adaptation. It's just that the way it worked was very unusual, but a lot of fun. I'm sure it was. Yeah, that's a very cool angle to, to be able to play up. So there's a lot of stories about the yeah. Yakuza and have been over the years in media. But I don't think I've ever, I don't remember ever seeing one that where they operated in Sao Paulo. So you kind of feel like this helps add even more of a unique aspect to the story. Absolutely. What people don't realize, even in Brazil, is that Brazil has the largest Japanese population outside of Japan. That Sao Paulo is the second largest Japanese city in the world after Tokyo. It has been for 100 years. Therefore, with such a great Japanese presence in Brazil, all aspects of Japanese culture are present, including the Yakuza. I've always been a huge fan of gangster movies, of Yakuza movies, and of masters like Takeshi Miki, Takeshi Kitano. I mean, I know that's obvious and it shows. I always, I had done another movie set in Brazil, spoken in Japanese 10 years ago about the Japanese immigrants after the Second World War and how they didn't believe Japan had lost the war. I mean, that's a whole different story. I'm not going to get carried away on that. But I, I already had a very, I was a great fan of Japanese culture, a great fan of Japanese cinema. I wanted to do a Yakuza movie. So when this all converged uh, into, with Yakuza Princess, I said, well, it's now or never. I've got to, I've, I've got to jump on this wagon and I've got to uh, take the opportunity to make a movie that 
no one is expecting because truly nobody was expecting mm. a Yakuza movie set in Sao Paulo. It makes for something that could feel like, oh, another Yakuza movie into something very original. Obviously, there are, I think I'd like or I like to think that there are other aspects that make it very original, but the setting is certainly a very important one. There's no doubt that there's plenty more that makes it original, so you don't have to worry about that at all. <laughs> I love Akemi, and, and I think, she, you know, obviously we know she's going to learn a lot, a lot about her family in this film and her past, and how she handles it, to me, is absolutely incredible. So what is it like, what is it about her, you think, that makes her so strong? Well, she's a woman. Women are much stronger than men. They have a resilience that we don't have. They have to fight against the, the patriarchy in a way that we don't we can't even imagine what it might be and she is inside Japanese culture which in itself is a very sexist culture I mean it is and the Yakuza itself is a very sexist organization I mean to have her personal story her past what she is learning and this world of men around her and her having to break through and break out and become the leader of, of this is something that if she's going to embark on this, she's got to be ready for w what's coming her way. And there is something about Akemi which goes beyond the sociological elements that I'm mentioning, which is a sort of transcendental bond to the Muramasa, which is something that comes through through her bloodline and which she's not even completely aware of. So it's there's really two sides of it. There's a sociological psychoanalytical side which has to do with her coming of age and there is a mystical almost genetic also uh aspect to it to it which is she is becoming who she was always meant to be that kind of story is a story that i've always been hooked on and i think that uh, masumi who plays akemi was played it really like like a master it's uh, it's unbelievable that this is her her first movie Oh, I agree 100%. I actually, uh, it's, I'm glad you brought up the Maramasa because I, I actually feel like it could be considered a character itself in this story. Would you actually agree with that? And how much can fans Absolutely. learn about how special this blade really is? It became very clear. That, that's one of the things that while we were discussing the script, both the script for the ground, it's funny because obviously, obviously graphic novel fans know this, but like people don't realize that graphic novels have scripts just like movies, obviously. I mean, it's obvious to you and to me and to all the uh, graphic novels fan, graphic novel fans out there, but it's not obvious to everybody. When we were discussing the script for the graphic novel and for the, for the movie, one of the things that the producers, Danilo and I, and the writers uh, discussed was, listen, the Muramasa is as much a character as our Shiro, as is uh, our Shiro, uh, Masumi, Takeshi, or any of them. In a way, it's the bond that brings everything together. And it's what gives meaning to Akemi's story. And it really is as if the blade had a life of its own and a will of its own. And in Akemi's hands, it becomes something much stronger and more dangerous also and transforms her because it brings out who she actually is. And that's very special. It's a character in a way it's, you could think of, of the Muramasa as an empower, an empowering guardian for her. And that, that kind of character is are very, those are very special characters. It's like Yoda for Luke Skywalker. There you go. That is such a great way to put it, actually. When, when you guys see the film, you'll actually understand why he says that that way, too. Now, Vincenti, before I let you go, the action sequences here are, I mean, they're quite intense. And the sword work, I thought, was particularly good in the film as well. Did you actually bring in any experts to work with the actors? And how did, they, how did you work with your uh, fight choreography team to uh, get those key stunt scenes together? I've done my share of horror and action, and it's hard. And, but sword play is even harder because it's actual choreography. It is a lot more like a dance than any other kind of action. So uh, I worked with Ricardo Rizzo, who is uh, the five-time world uh, Kung Fu champion as a fight choreographer. And he is a master swords, swordsman. And we worked, and there's really no secret to it, it's about rehearsing. We rehearsed for weeks and weeks and weeks until we were happy. And then we, were, we, we started off in a rehearsal room on stage, and then we went on location and we fine-tuned it and we decided what little beats 
might have to be the effects, not of the swordplay itself. That's all for real, but blood and guts and all the juicy stuff. That took a while. And we had a very, very special add-on, which was Masumi's husband, Kenny Liu, who is uh, also uh, a master swordsman and a martial arts specialist. And he helped us choreograph the last fight scene where he actually plays a guy who dies. And I'm not going to tell you guys how he died because I don't want to spoil it. And he helped choreograph that scene. That's why there is, on purpose, a little bit of a, a kung fu taste to that uh, to that fight. So uh, I owe a lot to both Ricardo Rizzo and to Kenny Liu. Most definitely. Wait till you guys see how deep this movie runs. Akuza Princess can be seen everywhere on September the 3rd from Magnolia Pictures. Vincente, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to tell you guys, the fight scenes in this are pretty intense. The sword play is really, really good. And there's a, a mysterious character or two that, that I didn't even get a chance to ask Vincente about. And yeah, there's going to be a couple twists to this as well. And yeah, there's some there's some pretty brutal kills in this thing too. No doubt about it. So if you love the martial arts, if you love a good good movie with sword play, and you're just into stories about the Yakuza, this is a definite unique take on that story. Yakuza Princess now available everywhere that you could see your movies. Thank you so much again to Vincente Amorum for joining me this week to talk about Yakuza Princess from Magnolia Pictures. Up next, going to keep it in the martial arts realm, actually. Mortal Kombat Battle of the Realms from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. I'll give you my review of that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Test your might is right. Here's my kind of spoiler-ish review of Mortal Kombat Battle of the Realms. Mortal Kombat Legends Battle of the Realms, I should say, from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. Just a few spoilers here because I know the movie's been out for a few days now. But I don't want to be that guy that just gives you the recap of the entire thing and, and spoils anything. So, now, it would definitely be helpful to watch Mortal Kombat Legends Scorpion's Revenge before this, only because that's the movie that came before it. And it kind of sets up these characters really, really well. You'll like you'll enjoy Joel McHale's Johnny Cage a little bit more if you watch the first one, or Jennifer Carpenter's Sonya Blade, and how things set up with Ike Amandi's Jax as well. There's just certain things you'll appreciate a little bit more, plus you'll understand the Sub-Zero character a lot more too if you do that. But... Again, this is a direct, almost directly after that first movie, and basically the battle still rages on between Outworld and the Nether Nether Realm as well, and Earth Realm to find out who is going to be who's going to be ruling over all of these different realms or combining them. I mean, either way, right? So then you also have Shao Kahn, who finally makes a huge appearance in this movie and you've got Raiden. So it's almost like God versus God sort of thing going on here. Right. And the interesting part about this, and this is one thing I will spoil is that they like come to an agreement that says, Hey, let's just go and ask if we can have one final mortal combat to decide who wins this battle. Because you know, and Raiden says this, Hey, we could fight forever. This is one way we can actually end it. So that's where the agreement comes in. And that is where, we get the final Mortal Kombat. And I will say that about this movie, and I'll, I'll cut right to the chase. If what you're looking for is a whole bunch of different fight scenes, like different Mortal Kombat battles between these characters, you will be super happy with this movie because we do get a lot of battles. You get a lot of fatalities. I'm not going to ruin any deaths for you in this review. None. But I will tell you this. There are a lot of them. And not just little ones either. I'm not talking about minor characters here. There are some big deaths 
in this movie. Some that might actually shock you, given where this story could then go from here if they decide to do another one of these stories. They also add some very interesting depth to a character like Sub-Zero, which wasn't really there in the first movie. We got plenty of that from Scorpion, not so much with Sub-Zero, and we get to see a little bit of a different Sub-Zero in this movie as well. And his connection to, to Smoke, I thought, was also really interesting in this movie as well. And, and one of the things that has to do with Sub-Zero and, and who he is training with is actually one of the things that gets this movie turned on its ear a little bit too, by the way. So so I'm just going to throw that out there and, and let you take that for what it's worth. But that was one of the interesting things about this. But pay attention to the cover of this DVD, I mean, of this Blu-ray and 4K, because that'll give you some clues. This is very much a Raiden-heavy and Liu Kang-heavy story as far as I'm concerned. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that because Jordan Rodriguez does a great job. I think even better this time as Liu Kang than the first movie. He really knocks it out of the park with this performance. And and of course, Joel McHale as Johnny Cage. I I mean, they, they gave him a lot more, it seems like a lot more jokes this time around. A lot of stuff that just really landed and a lot of big moments. Like imagine your reaction to a big moment in a fight scene and you get that from Johnny Cage from time to time in this movie. But I mean, if, if we're going to give the gold star to anybody in this, it's David B. Mitchell who voiced Raiden because that, that you want to talk about somebody that sells this movie so, so well. It is absolutely that character. And Raiden makes a big decision in this movie that was really, really shocking. And again, a game changer, quite frankly. So, and, and that's one of those things that kind of grabs you and gets you interested in the middle of this thing. So there's a lot of battles. There, there, There is definitely a very epic battle. Actually, a couple of them, if I'm being honest, at the end of this movie where one of them in particular, like, how the hell are they going to get through this thing? How, how seriously is this even going to work out? There's also a really big team up that if you're a diehard Mortal Kombat fan, it's one of those things that you're like, I was so hoping that we'd eventually see this and I wasn't sure we'd see it. And you do see it at the end of this movie out of necessity, not of necessity, mind you for survival, but at the same time you do get to see it. That's another thing I'm not going to spoil for you. I'm not going to tell you who lives. I'm not going to tell you who dies. I'm not going to tell you anything that that's going to make this movie not enjoyable for you. And those are just some big moments that I don't want to get into. We also get kind of deep into mortal Kombat lore as well as to want what one of the final, I want to say challenges for the movie is and for the group who basically want to save earth realm and, and some of the other realms too. As a matter of fact, there is a little bit of a, where do you go from here aspect to the end of it? Like you could end it here. You could certainly do another movie. And I think either way, I'd be cool with that. There are certain directions you could probably still go with this story and some of the characters where they're at though, I think it would be really interesting to see what challenge you could possibly bring now that certain characters are where they are in the higher hierarchy. So that's kind of how I feel about where that could go. And I do, I do think that it seemed like there was a lot more soul in the first movie. There was a lot more of a personal story and they kind of do that a little bit in the beginning of this movie, but not a ton throughout, which I thought they did really, really well. But this was the, this was your action movie, right? So it's like when Jeremy Adams went in to write this, he's like, you know, we gotta, we gotta have a lot of fights. And that's exactly what they had. Not putting words in on Jeremy's script at all, by the way. And I think he did a really good job at crafting this thing. And I know that he enjoyed writing those jokes for Johnny Cage. That one, that one I can almost guarantee. But I thought the pacing was really good. I thought Ethan Spaulding did a good job directing this thing. I think that just everybody involved, and you could tell that, that, that there was some definite input there from folks like Ed Boon and John Tobias in this movie as well. It, it, there was definitely something that would make everybody happy. You're going to get more characters in this movie that you didn't see in the last one, and that's always fun. You're going to get some good action. You're going to get some brutal 
fatalities. You get some of the X-ray stuff that we saw and that we've seen in the more recent Mortal Kombat movies as well. They definitely kicked that up a notch too, which I think really added to the brutality of these of these fight scenes. And I, I there was at least one time I had to look away. And I'm not the look away guy, but there was at least one time where I had to look away. And there's some massive challenges as far as creatures that they have to face in this thing where you go, holy cow, how is this going to work out? And then you see how it does and you go, oh, that's that's pretty. There was just a cool factor to this. If I'm being honest, there was a cool factor. So some great performances. I think that especially if you enjoyed the first Mortal Kombat Legends movie, if you've enjoyed Scorpion's Revenge, you're going to enjoy Battle of the Realms. It is definitely a fitting sequel in a way to either end the story or just end this chapter and move on to another. We'll have to wait and see. That's going to do it for my spoiler-ish review of Mortal Kombat Legends Battle of the Realms, which you can get right now on Blu-ray on 4K and digital HD. Up next, how about we go to the comics world? That's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is comic book creator Jason Sean Alexander, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Dropping bodies and creating some controversy this week. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and I'm going to start with Dark Ages number one from Marvel Comics and the great Tom Taylor, so your favorite character better be nervous because he's writing this one. Iban Coelho on the art, Brian Reber on the colors, VCs Joe Sabino on the letters, Coelho and Frank D'Armada doing the cover for this one. Like I said, if Tom Taylor's at the helm and it's an alternate reality story, you better hold your breath every time you see a character come on the page because they could go in any second. So you're you're holding your breath almost the entire issue right now. Going to have some spoilers since the book's already been out. I want to be able to talk about it in a little bit more detail. But it centers around a character called the Unmaker. It's basically an ancient machine that was designed to actually help our world survive you know, beyond galaxies, you know, destroying black holes and things like that. But now, you know, something ha- something happened and it was banished to a planet that was in development. That planet just happened to be the Earth. And now it's trying to tunnel our way through our planet from the inside out. Not good stuff. So, of course, you know, our heroes, the Avengers and, and X-Men and, you know, everybody gets together. Says we got to stop this thing. The problem is, is that when you go to stop something like this, that is all powerful and just completely and unbelievably destructive you start losing people left and right i mean like again major spoilers here you ready for this so ben Grimm goes down vision and scarlet witch go down dr strange goes down that is a major list of characters by the way i you think about the power in just that in just that group alone and then you would think that one now this is a massive machine the unmaker because it's it's not like this was just some some tiny nothing villain. But there was one survivor, and that was Sue Storm, and that was thanks to Doctor Strange. The problem is, is that what Doctor Strange did to help actually neutralize the Unmaker actually was like a giant EMP, and now the world is in darkness. And all the chaos that was happening while that was going on was just... Next level off the charts, but I have to say, with all the destruction, all the sadness, and all the just bad things going on in this issue, Peter Parker and MJ's daughter was a huge bright spot in this chaos. It's like seeing a ray of sunlight through the hole being trapped under this rubble, and you have one ray of sunlight that you hold on to. That was Peter and MJ's daughter, for me anyway. Now, the tease for what's next to the, at the end of this issue could actually be an even bigger problem, especially now that the world is in the state that it is. I will say that this story was very well thought out and definitely plays a high-stakes game from the very beginning. Like I said, you're holding your breath almost the entire time, and then you think about what will happen after this first issue and what it led to, and I think that's where the real intrigue of this story begins. So there's there's so many different possibilities. And, and now we know that, you know, potentially heroes and villains would be working together here in the future. And who's going to be a villain and who's going to be and, and how are some of the characters even going to operate in a world like this? So this leads to a lot of questions about how certain heroes and villains are actually going to do what it is 
they do in future issues. Now, it will be interesting to see who bands together, though, and who and what this new threat is as a whole that's being brought to the table. We know what the character is going to be, or one of them anyway. So that it, it, there's just so many, again, possibilities to where this story could go. The art was out of this world in selling the scope of the disaster in such incredible detail. And I mean, the details as a whole anyway were, were amazing, the detail work. But that should not surprise you, given who was in charge of the art in this book. The team was, I mean, you want to talk about a superstar art team. That's what this thing had. This, to me, is not one of those, you know, big-time story arcs where you go, eh, and then you just kind of forget about it. No, this is one that I want to read every week. And I don't say that about Marvel stories like this very often. So put this in your pull box, and you will not be sorry. This is going to be one you're looking forward to every month. Dark Age is number one from Marvel Comics. This one, a little bit of a different vibe, and it's Last Flight Out number one from Dark Horse Comics. This one's not out yet, so I cannot spoil it for you. Mark Guggenheim, yes, that Mark Guggenheim from the Arrowverse is going to be writing this one. Eduardo Ferragato on the art, also the co-creator with Guggenheim on the book. Marcelo Costa on the colors, Diego Sanchez on the letters. Now, again, no spoilers because I keep, you know the book's not out yet, but... This is basically a story of the Earth, and it's become uninhabitable, uninhabitable. And there was an ark that's been built to evacuate the citizens who have chosen to leave. The problem is, is that the character that this kind of story centers around is Dr. Ben Kaywood, who's the man that designed all these things that made it possible for everybody to leave, is his estranged daughter is kind of not there for the evacuation. She's, she's not necessarily missing. They know where she is. But she's not where she needs to be. So this is Kaywood's last chance to actually be there for his daughter. And however, whatever that looks like is part of, you know, what we try and figure out in the future, what's coming to future issues of this story. Now, I will say this. I almost didn't talk about this book, and I'll tell you why. This book actually touches on a hot button issue, a couple of them, really, that are going on in our society right now. One way or another... This story will likely trigger you. No matter what side of this issue you are on, you will probably get triggered for this from this book. So you'll either agree with every word or you'll angrily scramble for your closest social media account of choice and fire away. But likely you will be talking about this book if you read it. If that's enough to make you pick it up, then 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 I've then I've definitely done this book justice. Either way, though, the biggest problem with this book faces is that the main character, Dr. K. Wood, is very unlikable for a lot of reasons. To be fair, that may be the point, though, since it's obvious to some of the other characters in this book as well that, that say the same thing about him. So I think that's part of the point. But I will say that the artwork is stunning, though. Some of the cleanest lines you're going to find in any book on the rack Right now, you'll find in Last Flight Out from Dark Horse Comics, for sure. Now, the setup is there, and the sense of urgency is certainly there, too. But the question is, can this book give us a proper payoff in just six issues? I think that it probably can, but I, for me, I got to say jury's still out on this one based on the first issue. So this is something we might have to revisit. Last Flight Out, number one from Dark Horse Comics. It's going to do for what we're reading up next. Been some interesting nerd news that's come out this week, and we'll talk about it. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Shay Fontana, writer for DC Superhero Girl, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Looks like it's almost time to enter the dome once again. It's time for nerd news, and DC gave a big update on the DC Fandom virtual event, which was a hugely successful during the throes of the pandemic last year. It's going to be happening on October the 16th. We already knew that. What we didn't know is exactly what we'd be seeing. I want to break this down as quickly as I can because we are going to see a lot from Warner Brothers Pictures. So that means we are going to get a new trailer for the Batman, which is good. We're going to get some new content for DC League of Super Pets. So maybe we're going to see some more character reveals there. We're going to see a first look at Black Adam, which I know that we've been waiting for. Even a sneak peek at The Flash. I think that one has the most intrigue 
for fans. Also, some behind-the-scene looks at the Aquaman and Shazam sequels as well. As far as the Warner Brothers television side, I think it's really interesting because it's not all DC hero-related. Because you've got looks at new season of Batwoman, The Flash, Superman and Lois, and Sweet Tooth, which became hugely popular over the last several months. You've also got a tribute to this last season of Supergirl, which will have concluded by then, if I'm not mistaken. Also going to celebrate 100 episodes of DC's Legends of Tomorrow. I honestly don't think we we expected that to ever get there, did we? I, I certainly didn't, and I'm glad that it did. Also, first looks at Naomi and a sneak peek at upcoming episodes of Stargirl. Here's one of the ones that fans are most excited for, and of course, I talked to Sloan Morgan Siegel last week about playing Tim Drake in Gotham Knights, and there's going to be a big reveal for Gotham Knights at DC Fandom. You might have seen the poster that came up. Looks like we might be talking Court of Owls in Gotham Knights. I'm just speculating there. I kind of teased that with Sloan a little bit when we when we chatted last week. Maybe that's going to be confirmed at Fandom coming up. Also, Suicide, Suicide Squad Kill the Justice League. We're going to update on that Rocksteady game as well. There's also going to be some big stuff from DC Publishing. A lot of Wonder Woman stuff. Also, the Batman Fear State. Going to talk about the Black Manta 6-issue series that's going to be coming up. I'm really intrigued about the HBO Max stuff because we're going to be seeing an exclusive look at Peacemaker, also the limited event series DMZ, which I've been super, super excited about. Also going to talk about some stuff about Titans and Doom Patrol as well. We're finally going to get a look at Aquaman King of Atlantis from Warner Brothers Animation, some Harley Quinn stuff. We'll find that out as well. And even some stuff as it relates to Batman Cape Crusader, the new animated series that was announced a few months ago. So, so many things to look forward to, including looks at Injustice and Catwoman Hunted, too. So, yeah, that there's a lot to look forward to as far as DC fandom. But, yeah, I think that the things I'm most excited for, just like you, are that first look at The Flash. And I, I'm very interested to get the details on Season 2 of Sweet Tooth as well because I just loved that first season a, a whole bunch but then, you know, like DMZ, Peacemaker, it's it's stuff like that that's really got me interested. But as far as Batwoman news goes, we do have some pretty big Batwoman news to talk about. And that is that Poison Ivy has been cast for this upcoming season of Batwoman. And they've teased some big name villains before on this show, like since the very beginning. But this is the biggest one to date as far as I'm concerned. Variety dropped the news first that a Bridget Regan would be playing Poison Ivy. You might remember her from Marvel's Agent Carter. She was on Paradise Lost and a bunch of other stuff as well. And this is going to go the route as far as the character description goes of the former botany student at Gotham University. She's passionate. She's a brilliant scientist with a mind to change the world. And that's basically, you know, where it all goes south. You know the story of Poison Ivy. I don't need to read you the rest of this, but it will be her return to Gotham. It's kind of billed as her return. She's been dormant for years and now she's back. Why is she back? What brings her back? Other than, you know, now that there's another bat to tangle with. But why is now the time? And this will be a recurring guest star role. That's the way it's described. So we don't know if Poison Ivy is going to be the big bad for this season. But it really feels like this is a reset season for Batwoman. It also kind of feels like a make or break season for this series as well. Because, of course, you had Kate Kane in the first season. You know, you lose Ruby Rose. You bring in Ryan Wilder with Javicia Leslie. Then you kind of bring Kate Kane back with Wall's Day, which was, I thought, a good decision. But at the same time, maybe hamstrung the character of Ryan Wilder a little bit. So now Ryan has to... This is Ryan's season to step up and make it her own, which she kind of did last season. But again, when you've got Kate there, it's kind of hard to fully make it your own, even if it is... A different Kate. So you bring in Poison Ivy, which is a big name spotlight villain to certainly get fans interested in this season. And that's something that you really have to consider. And as far as making her the big bad, I know that there was some stuff teased at the end of last season, but nothing to me seemed really definite. So it's just interesting that you make this announcement, but don't confirm that she's the big bad. And if she's not the big bad, who's it going to be? Because to me, if you're going to do that, then you have to have a bigger name than Poison Ivy that's going to be your big bad for season season three. Did I miss that announcement? I don't think I did. So 
maybe that's also something that will that will get confirmed at DC Fandom as well. But I mean, I I love Poison Ivy. I think that she's going to work out really, really well. I think Bridget Regan is a good choice. One of those ones where you wouldn't necessarily think of her right off the bat if you were casting Poison Ivy. But then once you hear it and once you see her and you get that picture in your head, you go, oh, that's going to be an amazing casting. And don't forget, Batwoman Returns to the CW right before DC Fandom on October the 13th. So we're not really that far away from the return a Batwoman. So we'll definitely get some first look stuff for that coming up here shortly at, at FanDome. Here's one that I was kind of not expecting, and that is that The Rocketeer is going to be getting a revival on Disney+. Plus. It is going to be a movie. It's going to be called The Return of The Rocketeer. It's going to be produced by David and Jessica Oleolo. I'm, I'm, man, I'm sure I butchered that thing. And it's part of the first look deal for the Yorba Saxton brand with with Disney and this was first reported by Deadline and apparently this is going to focus on a retired Tuskegee Airman who takes up the Rocketeer mantle so it will be kind of an all new story now remember the first Rocketeer movie was released in 1991 we had Billy Campbell in that one and really I think that if I'm being honest and I I liked the Rocketeer I don't, I don't, I'm, I've not seen it again recently. That's one of those ones that I've always wanted to go back and watch to see how he really liked it because I feel like fans kind of have romanticized that movie over the years. Like you made it, you're in your head, you're making it way better than it actually was. Now, granted, what they could do with that movie in 1991 as opposed to what they're going to be able to do with this movie now, I think is a, is obviously a huge. Huge difference. I really do hope that they stick to more practical effects, though, and don't lean on CG a whole lot. But this is a movie that really has a chance to be good, especially kind of taking it in a different direction. So you're still you're doing the the retired Tuskegee Airmen, so you're keeping it in the past a bit, but you're also freshening the story up a little bit as well. So you'll get that really good past aesthetic that really, really works well for the Rocketeer. And again, give me a nice practical effects suit and don't CG this thing up too much. And I think that this is something that could really work better now here. And let's assume that this is going to come out maybe 2022, 2023, something like that. That That's just speculation on my part. Maybe they fast track this thing. Who knows? But perfect for Disney+. Plus. I'm glad that we're going to get a chance to see th- this one on that and that kind of takes the pressure off of this movie too as far as the success is concerned and I think that that's and that kind of sets up for sequels at that point I think if it's popular on Disney Plus and you're always going to want to drive people to your streaming service that's been pretty obvious for the Disney model lately so I'm not surprised to see that at all so I'm I'm curious to see where that's going to go Speaking of being curious Vampire Academy if if you're a fan of the Rochelle Mead novels then that one is coming to peacock that's going to come is a 10 episode young adult drama series to the peacock streaming service you have julie peck and margaret mcintyre who are frequent collaborators by the way you might know them from vampire diaries originals legacies so if anybody should be taking on a vampire story it's them and basically we're talking about saint vladimir's academy And it's a boarding school. It's a hidden place where vampire royals are educated and half-human teens trained to protect them from the savage Strigori vampires who would like to see them destroyed. That is the quick synopsis of the series. And we also have, if you want to go to downandnerdypodcast.com, you can see the full list of the cast. But you've got Cece Stringer, who's going to play play Rose Hathaway, if you're familiar with the stories. You've got Danielle Nieves, who's going to be playing Alyssa Dragomir as well, who's one of the Royal Morai vampires. And Kieran Moore is going to be in this. J. August Richard, who you might remember from Angel. So he's got certainly a background in this as well, is going to be playing Victor Dashkov, who's going to be one of the noble vampires. So there's, there's like a royalty aspect to this. So imagine something like Originals or Vampire Diaries or something like that, but then also add the royal aspect to it as well, the hierarchy aspect. And I, I think that that's something that could be really, really fun. So almost giving the vampire thing like a chilling adventures of Sabrina 
type vibe, but adding royalty to it. Like, like maybe mixing like, I don't know, the crown and chilling adventures of Sabrina or something like that. But it's, it's just something that could be a really fun young adult series that, that could be perfect for this Peacock streaming service. Quite frankly, this could really boost their young adult programming and, and something that could be really, really fun at the same time. So vampire Academy does not have a release date yet on Peacock, but I, now that the cast has been put together, it shouldn't be too long before they get things rolling on. It's going to film in Spain too, by the way. So that it's going to be a brilliant backdrop, I think for this series. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the down and nerdy podcast. Again, thanks to my guest, Vincente Amorim for talking to me about Yakuza princess. Also Joe Strecce talking about C both of those things. You can actually watch right now. Of course, see on Apple TV plus and Yakuza princess, basically everywhere. You can find movies at this point. Don't forget to follow along with us on social media at Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and Instagram and at Down and Nerdy on Facebook. And then go to our website as well, downandnerdypodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us too wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd. So let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story. Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.